Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very, very, very special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips, the very special Scott Phillips, and the even more special Dr. Ian Mahanti is joining me. How are you, Doc? I'm very good, Captain. Oh, <laughs> special Captain, how are you? <laughs> good, thank you. Mate, can I share, can I share the, uh, the voicemail that was left on your behalf in our office? Just oh, of course it. you can. I thought that, I thought that was fu- funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, that was really fun. So God, God, God love our members and readers. Um, sometimes, look, I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not prone from, uh, I'm not uh, excused from making the same sorts of mistakes myself, but uh, of course your surname is Mahanti. Uh, and, and I think somewhere between Doctor and Mahanti and a certain TV show and someone maybe having a couple of drinks too many, uh, there was a message left for a Dr. Martini on our voicemail at the office <laughs> the other day. So... I'm thinking Doc Martin. So Doc Martin was a uh, an ABC TV show. So maybe it's a bit of that. Uh, Martin Martini. I don't know. I don't know how. Maybe Mahanti. I, I kind of. I can see it. Maybe somehow. Uh, but I quite like that. So, so from now you may you may from now on be Doctor Martini. But we'll see how we go. You are of course Doctor Anirban Mahanti. And uh, by the way, if you're following Doc, if you're not following Doc, I should say, jump on Twitter at exactly that handle at Anirban Mahanti, and you can uh, follow along. Doc's goodness. Really cool tweet the other day, mate, on uh, Wednesday morning. I liked it a lot, so uh, I won't tell you tell our listeners too much about it. They can follow you and find out what you tweeted on Wednesday morning. Buddy, let's get on with our... So, so okay. I, I, I was just going to suggest Please. that, you know, I'm happy being Martini, provided I get five cents for every Martini <laughs> everyone has. Every day. In that case, I want to be... I think I can... Re- in that case, I want to change my name to... I think I can retire. <laughs> I want to change my name to VB if that's the case. <laughs> if you get five cents on Martini, I, I, want, I want a buck of beer and I should, I should be I should be fine. All right, mate. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you'll be able to get that one away, but you never know, mate. These days with, um, with, with IP laws, with the patent laws, you could probably claim some sort of, you know, access to that. Take, take, take the Martini industry to court and... See, do, try your luck. I'm not sure you'll win, but you never know. You never know your luck in the big city. No harm trying. Exactly. Other than the lawyer's fees, mate, which could cost you a small fortune. Anyway. That is true. <laughs> mate, so let's, let's kick off our mailbag, our, our special mailbag edition. For those who haven't listened before, we do a very special, very unusual uh, mailbag every single Sunday, which makes it a slightly less unusual. And I don't think any less special, but certainly not, not unusual. So um, we call it our bonus episode. It's, it's really not. The first question, though, came from Craig. Craig says, hi, Scott and Doc. Amazon is an amazing company. And disclosure here, both you and I own shares, so we, we can't disagree with Craig. Craig says, growing from a small bookshop into one of the biggest businesses in the world. It has done this with little interest in generating profits, concentrating on high sales growth. Fantastic for consumers, he says, but devastating for its competitors. It is not nicknamed the Death Star for nothing. Not sure if they have to pay royalties to uh, to Disney for that, but anyway, we'll move on. For the last few years, Craig says, it has been able to defy the law of large numbers and grow at a phenomenal rate. Easy question for the podcast. That's what he says. Here's the question. If Amazon and other smaller companies inspired by it decide they never want to make a profit, but their reason for existing is growth, i.e. profitless growth, does the law of compounding lead them to ultimately taking over the world, but in the end lead to the destruction of our capitalist system. And this was sent before the New Year. So he says, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you two wise gentlemen. Love the podcast. Full on. Doc, is this the beginning of the end for capitalism? Is Amazon and its ilk, are they destined to destroy the system as we know it, end up with some sort of profitless growth socialism or some version thereof where no one makes any money? Um, well, well, I don't necessarily agree with, uh, with what he's, where he has taken it. Uh, okay, so I think this is what happens. This is at least one version, right? I th- I think 
if you have to think about Amazon and e-commerce, for example, mm-hmm. it is really a shift of sales from physical retail to online retail, mm-hmm. right? So it's a movement from one sec- center to another center. It's never going to take the whole thing, but it's going to take some big portion of that, right? And it's also expanding sales by just by the sheer virtue of reach, mm-hmm. right? You can get stuff now without actually having a shop near you, which expands, you know, the share of wallet that people, I guess, uh, are fighting for. So that's number one. So my larger point is that I think companies innovate in different areas, right? So I think Amazon could be profitless because, you know, or at least on a, on a gap, gap basis, uh, because there's a large market and it knows how to reinvest for growth and therefore it can actually keep growing in terms of at least top line numbers. It actually generates free cash flow uh, or it generates free cash flow when it wants to, let me put it that way. Um, and I don't think you can be, uh, another company can become Amazon. That is, I think, mm. a wrong goal for a company to have because that is already an Amazon. You can be something different. You can be an Amazon of something else, but you can't be Amazon. Yeah. And, and, and the larger point here is that they're just after their customer, they're going to serve their customer, but they may not be able to enter other areas because they're so focused on so, you know, a few different areas. There'll be other opportunities for other places. And that's what capitalism effectively does, right? Capitalism effectively results in capital going towards new ideas and and those new ideas evolving, fleshing out and serving customers, right? And if you can't serve customers, whatever the customers, enterprises or, you know, regular users, then somebody else is going to come and serve them better. So I think I think capitalism is not really broken. In fact, that's exactly what you want, right? Low cost, better uh, over time. Mm. I think that's a really, really good question there from Craig. Doc. I actually completely agree with you, but I'm going to answer it from a slightly different perspective. I, I agree I agree with your broad point. Um, Craig, I think what's interesting about the new world is that investors' mentalities have changed in that, and frankly, it's allowed companies' mentalities to change because the globe is so big the total addressable market to use doc's term is so big and because investors feel like they can see a line from here to domination they're prepared to effectively front load all the investment by not requiring a profit so in the old days you if you wanted to let's go with trains you want to build a train you know, a railway you built one line and then you made some money out of that you use that extra money to build another train line and you largely self-funded or you borrowed some money occasionally you raised some money from investors but it was relatively you know lesser known the, the, the market wasn't that big or that functional at that point and so you kind of wanted profit before you did anything else and you funded growth out of profits and investors would invest on that basis okay well we can see how you might do this and this and this and at some point you know general electric when it first started i don't know a century ago um people weren't paying today's share prices for ge now i know it's in the doldrums now but stick with me for a second because they didn't, they didn't have the confidence or frankly the interest in paying up now for what a century of, of profits might look like. And that's probably right to some degree. Companies these days though and their investors are more prepared to look into that future and say, hang on, I can see what Amazon might be in three, five or 10 or 15 years. And I don't think, I being the investor here, the, the metaphorical investor, don't think Amazon will be profitless forever. And so I'm prepared to take losses now and invest money now and invest extra money now sometimes to deliver or to, to give me a ticket seat at the table when that domination actually happens. So you're kind of you're kind of front loading the entire investment journey in some in some ways. And that's I think what we're seeing now with investors. And that's why 
looking only at today, and this is this is to some degree the change, and I'll, I'll give away some of the idea of your tweet, Doc, actually from this morning, or from Wednesday morning, we're recording this on Wednesday, but goes to air on Sunday. Um, when you talked about the fact that, um, you know, looking to what the future is looking like rather than what the past has looked like is kind of really important for investors and how money is being invested, how markets are growing. The other thing is, by the way, to open a new steel mill, you had to open a second one in the third and you had to build a new one and it took years. And then you started making some money out of it. You start another one. These days you can be Amazon and go from zero to world domination in, what does it make, 24 years, I think, 97 was it started, I think, from memory. Um, I mean, you don't get that sort of sales growth and that sort of, you know, reach in 20 years in any other industry at any other point in time in the history. That, that's the sort of, you know, that, that's the sheer rate and size of growth you're looking for. And I think that's, to some degree, the story of the modern economy and the modern investment climate is investors are prepared to, to make that, I'll say punt, I don't mean it in a gambling sense, but they're prepared to put money up now to get a return much further down the track. Rather than putting up a dollar now and getting a dollar 10 next year, they're putting up a dollar now and hoping to get $5 in 10 years' time. Uh, and happy not to get anything in the meantime. So it's just a change to investor sentiment, which is real. And so you're right mentioning it, Craig. I think it's a really important point to make. But I don't think anyone really believes Amazon's never going to make any money. They just think it's possibly a decent distance out. And the same can be said of most startups, particularly in the tech industry at the moment, Dockets. You know, very rarely they come to market making a profit these days. Although I should say to some degree they are a little bit because more private money is going into VC funds, venture capital funds and that kind of stuff. But that's a whole other discussion for another day. I will say to your point about capitalism, Doc, I, I completely agree with that. And I think I think as investors, sometimes we've been conditioned to believe that capitalism is there for our benefit. And you know, as investors, we hope to benefit from it. But remember, of course, if capitalism works, it's designed to actually not allow anyone to make super profits. I mean, that, the whole idea of a well-functioning market is that competition happens. It creates benefits for consumers, benefits for, for those businesses' customers. It, it rewards new entrants. It rewards innovation. All things that capitalism is supposed to do i mean there's no textbook there's no official rule rule book for for capitalism but all things we kind of hold it out to be doing it, it actually should be um to some degree businesses chipping away at each other's profits so no one makes an extraordinary amount of profit because when there's super profit available that's when competitors come and try and win the business away that's i mean don't, it wasn't that long ago now walmart was profitable but uh, doc i'm old enough to remember and i want to say i think i've told this story before about 20 years ago no, not quite maybe 18 years ago I was working for a food company. At that point, I read an article that said something like 75% of the living standard improvement in the US in the previous, I'll say decade, it might've been 20 years, 75% of the increase in living standards was effectively put down to what the researchers called the Walmart effect. And Walmart was going to then kill the mum and dad, you know, the mum and pop stores as the Yanks call them. Um, you know, it, it was the Amazon of its time. <laughs> and so we talk about now Amazon killing physical retail in the same way we talked about at the time. Um, Walmart doing the same thing. So this is this is exactly, you know, Walmart it was disrupted by Amazon the same way Walmart disrupted others. That's exactly what happens. I don't think we'll see profitless prosperity, although it's possible. Um, and, you know, investors at some point, though, if that happens, will simply stop funding these businesses. So these things will self-correct. You're right to be asking about it, but I don't think it's a big deal. Any more thoughts from that, Doc Maria? No, I think just, just the fact that there's, you know, life cycle, right? So, you know, these companies are created you know they grow then they become profitable and they actually have a lot of profit and then they eventually don't innovate and are out innovated by other people right so i mean the ge is a classic example of that right it was the innovator which is no longer the innovator in some sense right or i, I mean it's yeah, not exactly necessarily the company's right. going to die yeah. Like, yeah like ibm right yeah, IBM is still around. yeah right well i mean gm right i mean yeah, and, and, <laughs> the and, effect and, is worth and, and so, yeah, go on. Yeah, and, and Walmart too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and sometimes what will happen is the other companies will catch up to the changes. So Walmart has a very, very strongly growing uh, e-commerce business, for example, you know. Um, so again, you know, it's hard to know 
but I, I think it's just important to remember that there's a life cycle. And in many ways, Amazon appears big, but Amazon mm. is actually still pretty young yeah. as a yeah. company, right? I mean, it's been around for, as you said, only, what, 25 years. So Nice. I like it, mate. Um, let's move on to another one. This I'm, I don't have a good answer to this one, mate. So I'm gonna, but Neil asked it, so I'm going to ask you, and you can let me know if you have a thought. Neil says, can you talk about security tokens and what your views on tokenization of the stock market might be might mean in the future on the podcast? Token, so look, we're talking about blockchain here, Doc. We're talking about the potential move from chess to some sort of blockchain-y so-called tokenization. Now, token is the general name for a, a blockchain kind of currency or record. I'm, I'm going to mash it up here. And those uh, Bitcoin and blockchain aficionados don't come at me because I don't, I don't really care enough. But uh, <laughs> I do, but you know what I mean. Um, do you have any views on what the tokenization of the stock market might mean for investors, mate? A move away from, from, from chess into some sort of brand new world where our ownership interests are recorded somehow in some sort of blockchain style ledger. Um, is it something you're looking forward to? Is it something you're worried about? Is it something that's going to influence how you invest or what you expect from investing? Not really. I don't, I don't have too much expertise on that. And, and largely this is like backend software thing, right? I mean, whether you record it in a database or record it in a blockchain, I mean, you're recording it in some form or the other. At least that's my view. Mm. So I'm not... You know, I'm not really sure whether uh, whether or not it is, um, you know, groundbreaking in some way. But again, I don't I, I don't claim to be an expert, so I don't really know. Yep, Neil, I've got no more to add on that other than I don't think it's a big deal as long as it's as secure or more secure than the current environment. Um, it's literally just a, a, an item of record. Uh, how you record my ownership interest in shares is largely immaterial. There are some security implications potentially. Um, there are some you know ownership implications potentially. You might be able to transfer money and shares more quickly because the that sort of stuff is maybe more instantaneous. But realistically, from a from an investing perspective, and we, when we say investing, we mean it uh, as a long term pursuit. Almost by definition, it has zero impact on anyone. I don't really even think it has an impact on even the hyper traders. Maybe it does to some degree that I don't know about, but I don't claim to to understand. So we'll. We'll keep moving. Um, Doc, I had a, a question here from Jane. Now, I'm going to tread carefully on this question. Um, you may choose to weigh in, you may not. I'm going to answer it because she asked it. Um, and you'll hear as we ask the question, there are some some implications that I'll, I'll t- touch on in a second. But it's a good question more broadly. So here's the question from Jane. She says, hi, Scott. Hope you're keeping well. And thanks again for a terrific show. You're very welcome. She says, I have a question. Read DIY investing versus investing via a managed fund. I listened earlier last year to your interview with Joe Mager from Lakehouse Capital and have since kept an eye on his two funds, an Australian listed small companies fund and a global growth fund. Returns on both are impressive. So I'm wondering, going forward, do we continue our DIY approach to investing or should we hand over the minimum investment and let Joe do the hard yards for us? Although we're not planning to sell any existing holdings, I'm just wondering how we allocate our capital in 2021. Love to hear your thoughts from Jane. Now, Doc, I will say a couple of quick things to get us through the, the minefield here. The first is Lakehouse Capital is a wholly owned subsidiary of Motley Fool Australia, which in turn is owned by Motley Fool Holdings in the US. So it is part of the Motley Fool family. We don't talk about the fund other than in interview style on this podcast, and we don't do it in most of our marketing because we try and keep a really thick Chinese wall between us i.e. the newsletter advice business and the funds management business so that our listeners and members can trust that there is nothing untoward going on between the two parts of the business. Other people don't do that and that's up to them. We simply choose to have a view, which is we don't mix our research. We don't mix even, well, we 
<laughs> no one mixes socially anymore, but uh, we rarely mix socially with those guys. We don't talk stocks ever or investing ever with those guys. We have really strict rules about what we do and don't say. They're largely internally required. As I said, other people don't do that. Um, there are competitors of ours who simply ha- happy to have both businesses intermingled. We just choose not to do that for, for probity reasons. So when I, uh, the reason I give that is because we're going to hold to that, Jane. Uh, I'm not going to talk about Lake House and I'm not going to talk about Joe. Um, I love Joe. He's a great guy. We both work with him. Doc and I both like him. Um, you know, say that we don't get to talk stocks with him anymore, frankly, because uh, he's a, a smart guy. But but that's all we're going to say about Lake House and about Joe in particular. Instead of that, Doc, what I'm going to ask you is a broader question from, from Jane, which is largely the question of DIY versus a managed fund result. Now, if you know, we're stock pickers, you and I like to find our own stocks and try and beat the market and do all that kind of good stuff. For our listeners out there who are saying, guys, that seems like a lot of hard work. Wouldn't I just go to a managed fund that is beating the market, put my money there and be done with it? Or wouldn't I just throw my money, Jane didn't ask this, but let me ask it on her behalf, wouldn't I just throw my money in an index fund and be done with it? So my question to you is, when would we suggest to people you should pick your own stocks? And when would we suggest to people they should go and get someone else to do it, either actively in a managed fund or passively through an ETF? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. Uh, look, I think it, it broadly comes down to interest rates. If you're interested in looking at your portfolio, managing your portfolio, knowing about companies, you're interested in business, um, you know, you're basically an investor in that sense. And you don't have to have a lot of time, it depends on the amount of time you have. But, you know, you can actively invest in individual stocks and look to outperform the market uh, over the long term. And and. It's really an interest-driven question, right? Now, if you can't do that, then you would still say investing in the market is very good for you. And there are a couple of different options, right? I mean, as you rightly said, an ETF, for example, whether it's active or passive is another strategy, another direct venue, right? Where you open an account, uh, you're not paying fees. Well, you're paying fees. You're paying fees to the uh, to the ETF manager, mm-hmm. but you could get instant diversification, right? You buy you know, NASDAQ 100 and you'd get very good returns. Uh, or you'd have got very good returns again. I don't know about the future. Um, so, so the, lots of different options. If you if if you want to be somewhere in the middle too, you could be that where you say, well, I want to invest in tech, and I want to invest in tech in that area. And you can find there are hundreds of different types of ETFs that you can get. You can choose your region. You can choose your sector. You can choose your subsector. You you can do so many different things. That's another way. Mm-hmm. However, I think the important thing to keep in mind is I think the, the closer you get to picking subsectors and sub-subsectors and regions, you're getting closer to individual stock investing. You might as well then be individual stock picker and manage your portfolio. If you want to not do that, then either, either the option is to pick a couple of different ETFs and be done with it or give your money to a trusted fund manager and be done with it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether there's a right or wrong thing. I think it basically depends on circumstances, amount of time you have, uh, your situation, your inclinations. You know, you want to, uh, on your weekends, you want to go play golf and let person X manage your money. That's your choice. Yeah. You want, uh, you know, spend your weekends playing golf and looking at stocks. That's your choice. <laughs> or you want to, you know, just invest in some ETFs. That's your choice. Really, it's it's it comes down, I think, to individual choice, ultimately, I think. And it depends on who you are. I could never, for example, I would never give away my money to a <laughs> fund manager, even, even to someone I know right. and like. And I just don't do that because 
you know, I would think that I could do better than them. <laughs> Internally, even if I might not, I would just think that I'll do better than them. And, and therefore, that'll be like, you know, a, a, a feeling. So, uh, yeah. So I think, again, it depends. I think it depends on you, the individual, really. Ultimately. Yeah, nice. I like that, mate. That's a really good summary. Um, I can't add much more other to echo that. Jane, I, I, I take your point. If Here's the thing. I think our performance requires faith in the strategy you're following, whether that's picking your own stocks or having a, a fund manager. Ironically, while we look at you know, managed fund versus passive investing, really a managed fund is another version of, kind of stock picking. Whether you do it yourself or you get someone else to do it on your behalf, you have to believe that after tax, oh, sorry, after tax, after fees, after, after tax, but after fees, you're likely to beat the market and that's that's the that's the very definition of of why you would go active whether that's yourself or somebody else um to some degree to doc's point i you know you've got to believe that whichever fund manager you choose could be someone with a motley fool could be not um can actually beat the market after fees over the long term and that includes us by the way as stock because if you enjoy one of our services you have to also have that degree of faith and confidence um the question for, for you as an investor is, where do you think the, the most value or potential sits? Um, do you have enough confidence in the long-term outperformance of somebody else? And to some degree, whether you want to have control over the stocks you pick. Um, you, you know, With our services, you have the option of saying, yeah, nice idea, guys, but no one in the world am I buying that? Or, or conversely, you haven't recommended this, but I like it and I'm going to buy it myself. Um, that element of control with us as your you know navigator, if you like, in a, in a rally car example, um, it gives you that opportunity should you choose to take it. Now, Others will do it differently, and that's completely up to them. Who are happy to give a, a money to a fund manager and say, "I trust them over time to beat the market." That's completely again up to you as an investor. And to Doc's point, I, I'm, I'm, I've said before, I'm not super keen on really specific ETFs because you're kind of back at stock picking. It's not really passive at all. It's active using an ETF, and that's a different story as well. Um, I really like passive ETFs. I, I'm a big fan of them actually. If you're getting something you can't always do yourself, which is either international exposure in particular or a broad exposure in a single click, effectively a single purchase that you otherwise couldn't replicate yourself. So there's, there's absolutely room and place for them. And if you don't want to pick your own stocks, you don't want to be active, I think passive is great. Um, I think a lot of people would benefit from being passive rather than active. Uh, but if you think you can beat the market and you want to give it a go, there are, there are really significant rewards available for the average investor who's able to deliver that sort of uh, market beating performance and if you can do it then the returns are well and truly worth the effort plus frankly some people like doing it it's just fun it's interesting and it's a hobby and if that works for you and you beat the market then you, you win twice any more on that mate? I have nothing to add beautiful mate we've got a follow up question from little miss Harry Legs who featured on this podcast a little while ago a couple of weeks ago she says hi Scott here is a question for your special Christmas mailbag oops sorry we're a bit late on that one uh, we, we've done our best to keep up we are falling behind but we're going to get through as many questions as we can today she says I was reading about the recent Kogan decision to grant significant options to two execs just for staying with the company for three years it seems excessive she says I wonder if you could give your view on executive bonuses do you think bonuses work, be- work to boost company performance if so what measures should they be linked to so they work should I be concerned about huge payouts as a shareholder? Have a foolish Christmas and a great break from Little Miss Hairy Legs. Thank you very much, Little Miss or Hairy Legs or whatever I should call you. I'm not sure. I'll just go with Little Miss Hairy Legs, I think. Uh, Doc, your thoughts on Kogan uh, retention bonuses and bonuses in general and what investors should look for? Well, I don't have any specific comments about uh, Kogan retention bonuses. I mean... Uh, I mean, if, if the people you're trying to retain already have enough shares in the business, I don't know what the point is of giving them additional shares, but I mean, you know, this is an argument neither here nor there. Um, so, so really, again, to, to me, I think at a very high level, I would say that you can give people 
shares in the business, restricted stock units in the business, and but you should tie them up with um, a long-term performance of the company and, and and really, I think, also long-term returns. So not just performance, but returns. Uh, so, you know, I, I like, I'd like to see the management team then deliver on, you know, s- certain things about, you know, how much the revenue is and how much the profits is or how much the operating profits are and things like that. And not short-term, but long-term, like, you know, what are you going to do in five years? What are you going to do in 10 years? Things like that. And, uh, and, and then also, you know, uh, you know, have you have you delivered good stockholder returns? Because I mean, you could generate those returns by being, uh, you could generate those revenue growth and operating profit growth by doing silly things with your capital. So have you been ca- careful with capital management? So I think those two things are important. But as long as it's, you know it's reasonable and tied to long term performance, I really don't mind it. I mean, you know, like if so, if the if if the uh, the bonus scheme said that you know we're going to give ten percent of the company to you know the executive A, but you know that comp- the person is going to deliver you ten x growth, well, I said okay, I'll take it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Just do it for right, me, right. and maybe take fifteen percent, right? Uh, so I don't know. Like I mean, what I have the biggest problem I have is with these targets that are really short termish, and that can be fudged in many different ways. Yeah. So I think, you know. And I think it's very hard to fudge, fudge both sales growth, revenue growth, profit growth, and shareholder returns, right? If you can do an and for everything, I think it becomes harder to fudge. Mm. So, so I think those are sort of the things I would say um, are good. Sometimes people do peer group comparison. That's maybe good, maybe not good. Um, I don't know, because you could choose the peer group, I guess. So I don't know, I've, again, it depends really on the fine print too many in many cases. I like that, mate. I think that's important. Um, so look, on the Kogan stuff, I don't love it, I have to say. Like, I'm a Kogan shareholder. I, I'm a fan of the company. They do a good job. I actually really like Rosalind and David Schaefer, who are the two execs getting, them, getting their shares. They seem to be doing a really good job. And so it's one of those situations where if I had my druthers, would I give them 6 million options for the sake of it? No, I probably wouldn't. <laughs> I'd rather have the money for the rest of the shareholders. Thanks very much. Can I begrudge it? I don't know. I mean, they've got to settle 2025 for a start. So that's four and a bit years. Um, they have an exercise price. Their options are not shares. And so if the share price is below the exercise price, then they actually lose out. They get nothing for it. So there is some value in them to continuing to do well. Now, the exercise price is $5.29 and the current share price is probably 19 odd bucks at the time of, of recording. So they're well and truly in the money already. It doesn't take much for that to be worth something. So there's, you know, it's, it's a free kick, let's be honest. And there's no downside. If it doesn't happen, they don't get them. They're, not, they're no worse off. Um, on the flip side... You know, it's one of those key person problems of you got to ask yourself, uh, you know, what what are these people worth to the business versus not being at the business? And, and is there any value there? Um, again, as Doc said, they own so much of the business already. They're not exactly going to walk away and torch the rest of their holdings if they don't get the options. So it does seem a little bit generous to me, I have to say. Generally, with with um, bonuses, a little Miss Hairy Legs, I... Look, the problem is always what gets measured gets done as I say or what gets incentivized gets done um, if you want people to double profits is that good well maybe I mean is doubling profits ever bad it is if you go and spend the company's money or, or borrow money to simply buy enough businesses to double your profits I, I could I could double the profits of the Motley Fool tomorrow by going and spending 84 billion dollars buying other businesses that would more than double it if the bank would lend me the money then I would in theory get that in now it's not my call of course and I don't get the money but that would that would you know deliver me the gains I'm looking for I could double profits tomorrow easy um, would it be sensible to do so? Well, 
if I take on that much debt, you know, at a high interest rate, is it worth it? That's a different question. And so you've got to be careful about what you're measuring, what you're incenting. I would say to you, most of the incentives are poorly structured on the ASX, almost almost exclusively, um, because they can be gamed and because they tend to be focused on largely on share price, in theory, because that aligns the interests of shareholders with management. Uh, though the average retail shareholder tends to be a shareholder longer than the average executive runs a business, which tells you exactly that the incentives are unaligned. I've said before, I would incentivize management on uh, return on investment, um, as probably as a percentage, maybe as dollars, uh, and I would make those payments contingent on them continuing to hit those goals five years after the year in which it was earned. So if you earned your bonus this year in 2020, you would get it paid to you in 2025 if and only if the results in the meantime had been above the appropriate benchmarks. Now, that seems harsh. Yes, absolutely. But what it does is it makes sure you're not gaming the system. You're not screwing the next guy or the next girl. You're not setting up risk that you can't take on. You know, if I get my number this year and I miss it next year, at least I get something. Um, you know, one of the easiest ways to function, to fudge your numbers, by the way, is say, well, the business is kind of rubbish, but a month out from, from the new year, I'm going to pull forward as many sales as I can into this year, pull in 13, 14 months worth of sales into, into this month, into this year, I get my number. Next year, I start well behind, but who cares? I've already got my incentive. Why do I care about next year? Um, now, some people say, well, they are people of integrity. They've got next year's bonus on the line. Those things can be true. Uh, but if you're looking at a million dollar plus bonus for getting something this year, Aren't you just a little bit inclined to worry about next year, next year? Uh, so, look, I think, you know, it, it all incentivizes short-term thinking. I think it's a shame. I think it's a waste. Um, I would actually cut back bonuses meaningfully, I have to say. Uh, I don't think they really serve to add much value, but you're never going to have a remuneration consultant recommend that because guess who pays them? The companies that recommend, that they know how to recommend the incentives. It's all very incestuous and it's all a bit, uh, I'll get you as my consultant. If you recommend, I get a pay rise. Uh, funny how that tends to drive prices up and, and pay rises uh, alongside it. So that's, um, yeah, I, I'm a bit cynical on that one, I have to say. Anything more on that, Doc? I have nothing to add. Let's go from a question from Josh, who says, Hi, Scott and Doc. Question for the podcast. Keep up the great work on the pod. It's very informative and entertaining. Thank you, Josh. Oh, I like this. Here we go. If you were to have your time again, we've kind of answered this a little bit, mate, but let's ask it directly. If you were to have your time again, what would you do differently in March or April during the market crash? Now, he says, buying more shares is obviously the answer, but what are the key lessons you could you have learned that we should remember for the next major market shock. Thanks, Josh. Now, we've covered some of this, Doc, so we don't need to go over old ground if we, if we don't, uh, don't have anything new to add, but is there anything differently you would do time again, or maybe you're gonna do differently next time this sort of thing happens, is probably the better, the better question. What have you learnt from COVID and the, the COVID crash that you hope to use or, or do differently next time around? One of the problem, one of the key problems to remember is every situation is different, right? So it's not that I can take a lesson from this one and apply it to the next <laughs> one because every circumstance is, yeah. circumstance is different. And I think the other thing to remember is control for other other factors, mm -hmm. right? And you can't, you don't know whether there's other, you know, which factor actually mattered how much, right? So for example, you know, um, if a company couldn't be suspended for like say three months, would it probably go bankrupt? It probably would go bankrupt, uh, right? So there are those lot of factors that I think come into play, which are, it's very important to remember. Um, so I'm hesitant to draw, I'm hesitant to draw too much conclusion from blip events because the blip events, yeah. like statistically speaking, they're blip events because they don't happen often. Mm. 
And because they don't happen often, statistically, you can't actually make mm. any guaranteed claim, mm. you know, statistically valid claim about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. just for the fact that there are so many, there are only, you know, few recessions and the rest are not recessions, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the safest thing would be to say, well, you know, if you have some cash, you basically deploy the cash mm. on, you know, my theory be if you've got some cash on the sidelines, that you have available. If you don't have any cash, you do nothing and you just sit and wait. Mm. As long as you've invested in good businesses, you'll be fine. Mm. And if you have cash cash on the sidelines, then you know it's a great time to put cash on the best businesses you can find. Uh, I'm not I'm not that much of a recovery. Like I'm not interested in a 50%, 30% return and then have to figure out time to sell. But you know when crashes happen, you know good stuff also gets sold, which is going to probably give you much higher returns. So that's the only thing I would say. If you've got some cash, then that's a good time to so to invest in perhaps having some cash available all the time uh, is again psychologically a good thing because it allows you to be aggressive um, when otherwise you are just watching you know, your portfolio being uh, destroyed, right? It allows you to do something, the urge to do something. Yeah. Instead of selling stuff, you're actually buying things. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of a, it's a control on your mind. Those are the things I would say. Nice, man, I like that. I don't have much different that I would do, um, not to say everything perfectly, but I'm generally I'm generally invested almost entirely. And so what I did do, Josh, is I, I did invest almost all the money I had available to invest, which wasn't a great deal relative to my portfolio size because I tend to be invested almost fully almost all the time. So to some degree, uh, not a lot I would do differently. I And to Doc's point, the... The biggest, uh, the biggest lesson maybe is that you shouldn't draw too many lessons. So the mistake I made in hindsight was I went into, I put some money into uh, Webjet in particular. I own shares still for the record. Um, I went into Webjet because I didn't expect the downturn to be as long or as deep in terms of travel bans as it ends up being. So that was actually a mistake in the event. Now, question I've said many times on this podcast and to the team, as Doc will tell you, um, is be careful not to learn the wrong lessons. So I bought shares of Webjet when they looked cheap because I thought the downturn would be less, lower, less in duration and less severe um, because I thought it would be, COVID would be more like SARS or MERS, right? Now, it wasn't, and, and that's well and truly in the in the game. Was that a mistake? Yes, in hindsight. Uh, but if I did it you know, another 10 times, would it be a mistake each of those 10 times or what would the odds be? That's a harder question to answer for yourself. And that's why I am hesitant to, to, again, as Doc says, learn too many lessons from it because you don't want to learn the wrong ones. Um, next time around, you know, look, here's the thing. Next time there's a, there's a respiratory illness, you know, announced, unveiled, reported, shares are going to fall through the floor. You know, the next, I don't know when the next time will be, but let's say 2024. I don't, don't quote me this in three years' time. Uh, there's some sort of mysterious respiratory virus, you know, that, that has its origins in, I don't know, I don't want to, yeah, Thailand, let's just pick for the fun of it. Um, a different Asian country just to make sure I'm not picking on China uh, you know honestly the market will absolutely have kittens it'll be a it'll be a bloodbath for a day or two because everyone will say oh this could be the next SARS uh, next, uh, next COVID I said not SARS that's the point uh, could be the next COVID uh, now maybe it is right maybe that will be or maybe it won't be maybe it'll be more like SARS or MERS where it's a small localised issue the market will have overreacted by then will it be right to buy Webjet or a Dilk at that point well again we can't know at the time so I made a mistake. Would I do it again? Probably. I mean, obviously, no, no of course I wouldn't. But, um, you know, could I have waited longer to make the purchase? Maybe. Um, but again, if it was SARS, there wouldn't have been a further downturn. It might have been the bottom of the market. So trying to learn the wrong lessons is, is really, really difficult or trying to make sure 
you know what's going on. If I'd had cash, I would have I would have made sure I invested it during that period. Um, but yeah, so I'm mostly fully invested, so I wouldn't do anything differently. And in fact, I'd resist the urge to hold more cash just in case that happened. Because again, if you look at the year over over the you know the last well, the, the year that was 2020, um, the market was roughly flat. Uh, you know, I, I, if I hold cash, I think generally speaking, I'm going to m- probably do less well than if I was fully invested because the market tends to go up over time. So long way of saying, I don't think I do much differently, not because I was a genius, just because as Dr. Rhee said, it's hard to learn any concrete lessons or know what to do differently next time or the same next time because circumstances are always different. But really good question, Josh. I like it a lot. Thank you, Matt, for the for the question. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Question from Elsa Anthony. He says, hey there, Scott and Doc. I'm an Australian share advisor and EO subscriber and a USA stock advisor and rule breaker subscriber. There we go. He says, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think extreme opportunities is akin to rule breakers. If this is the case, I have to think the six rule breaker investor traits apply to shares of the EO service. If this is the case, he says, I often get stuck with rule number two, add up, don't double down. Now, let's do some let's do some backgrounding here. Uh, Rule Breakers is the service founded many years ago by our Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner. It is doing spectacularly well. Trying to find, I'm going to say, Doc, and you can correct me or agree with me, the sort of, you know, I won't say, I won't say David Gardner's trying to find the same stocks you are. I'd say you're trying to find the same sort of stocks David Gardner is. But in any case, the investing philosophy is roughly similar. We'll give David the, uh, the primary billing there, mate, if you don't mind, because he probably deserves it. And frankly, he pays the bill, so he gets it. Um, the, uh, the Rule Breaker service, you know, it looks for very specific types of companies um, and, and has a very specific investing philosophy. Now, Anthony's saying, it seems to me like EO, Extreme Opportunities, has kind of modeled after that. And if so, he gets stuck with the idea of, as David Gardner calls it, add up, don't double down. Now, he says then, as an example, I've owned EML since June 2020. During that time, I've seen the share price struggle till about September, then slowly recover. The hit was largely COVID-related. He says, I've seen EML pivot, launch FinLabs, a whole lot of other detail. He says, they've been nimble, forward-thinking, and appear to be executing. Are they winners within the general philosophy of EO or rule breakers? So basically, he's asking. So, firstly, tell us the David Gardner version of add up, don't double down, because that's a it's slightly different, slightly unusual, and very rule breakery way to think about investing. And then give us a sense of whether EML qualifies under that criteria to add more money, or because the share price has kind of fallen a bit, is it a stock you would avoid because the price is going down? Hit us. Okay, so I want to first clarify. Um, this clarification is important largely because, I mean, it is true, 100% true, that we have modeled um, extreme opportunities on rule breakers. Uh, but I think what I want to point out is the types of companies that rule breakers chooses from and the types of companies we choose from, there's, there's actually a vast difference. And that difference is important for people to realize because we we are looking at substantially earlier stage businesses like you know we like when we are picking a business that's a 300 million dollar market cap that's really tiny those tend to be typically in venture land right i mean you know you you typically do not get that type of businesses in the rule in to compare the, compare that with the rule breakers you wouldn't see those businesses as public that's number one so it's the risk level is is higher uh, and potentially maybe the reward, you could get a higher reward. That's, I think that's one thing to, for people to realize. I, w- I would not equate um, 
in many ways, rule breakers will be more evolved, there'll be the business will be more formed, and, and maybe the risks are not as high, maybe as compared to um, to EO. And, and I'm not saying this for all the all the all the companies we look at, because you know there are, there are substantially larger businesses, like for example EML, which we would pick, then there'll be smaller businesses that we'd be we would pick. So so there's a range there. Uh, that we need to th- need to think about. So that, that's important. And the reason I point mm-hmm. this out is just because of, for strike rate, right? Um, you know, our strike rate could be lower, largely because um, again, the businesses are inherently risky. They're small. Small. Small basically means you're going to have less cash on the balance sheet. You have less cash on the balance sheet, less ability to generate revenues. Higher chance that things can go wrong. And if things go wrong, you could go bust. So that's that's important to realize. Um, in terms of this idea that you add up and don't double down, hmm. you know, this is a hard one to understand, but effectively the idea is that if a business is executing well, it is likely to show in via share price appreciation. As, like, you know, as we were talking you know, for the Friday's podcast, at least over a long time period, you would expect that revenue growth or gross profit growth effectively shadows share price growth, right? right? Because I mean, if the business is growing, it, the share price should grow. So that's so. What another way to think about that is what David is saying: if the share price is going up, quite likely the business is also growing. And if the business is growing, that's the type of business. As long as it has a large opportunity in front of it, um, those are the type of business you want to add to. And typically. You know, again, we're talking the magnitude. The magnitude of share price being up may not reflect the entire true value of the company. Similarly, the magnitude of the share price being down may not actually reflect the the extent of potential downfall. So, I mean, typically the share price going down is reflective of challenges and problems. And then you have to be very careful to figure out whether it's temporary, uh, is the market missing something. My experience is, is actually I rarely double down. Okay. Right, and they rarely double down because what I've found is doubling down is probably the worst way to lose money. <laughs> yeah. So rarely double down, as a, and there are very rare instances where actually I would double down and the price is, is down and the price is out. Mm. I need to have tremendously high conviction for doing that. And and the only re, and there, you know, I would say that in my experience at least that such opportunities are probably maybe once a year you get one if you're lucky. Mm. It's not that, because again, the thing is, there's so many people looking at stuff. Down and out is probably the obvious thing everybody looks at. At least this is how I think. The down and out is everything, you know, it's in everybody's screener. It is down and it's out, I'm gonna look at it, and then I'm gonna try to figure out that there's a way. In fact, what people miscue on the upside, people at the same time also, at least in my view, think that, you know, miscue on the downside, right? And effectively it turns out to be the other way around, well, actually, if something has fallen 50%, it's probably going to fall another 50%. <laughs> so, so I try not to double down, largely because then I, if something has, if the, so again, we're talking about stock prices, and, and, I, and, I, and I want to be careful here, but if something has fallen a lot, I try to ask myself the question, why? Yeah, right. And I want to know why. And I want to understand what is the catalyst behind it and then I want to think about, well, why is the market wrong? Mm. And if I can convince myself the market is wrong and I have high conviction on it, that's when I would act, right? Otherwise, I would be very careful about it. Um, 
so to specifically answer our EML questions, so EML is, is a re- recommendation we hold, we have we have recommended a couple of times. I think EML is a special case in many ways. EML has has significant business in Europe, significant business uh, in Australia. It's a money. It, it's a business that's also linked to uh, malls, and we all know what has happened to malls and mall traffic <laughs> yeah. and lockdowns and so on and so forth. I think there the big question, at least some time ago in my mind is, does the business have the fortitude to actually withstand long lockdowns, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, ultimately, if you don't generate enough cash, well, you're going to run out of money. If you run out of money, you're in trouble. Then you have to raise money. That's dilution and things like that. Uh, one of the things that they did well is they had this big acquisition called prepaid financial services uh, out of Ireland. and. They renegotiated the deal, so that reposed some faith. But again, you know, I uh, I tend to like to see growth coming back, and tre- tend to like to see, um, you know, things working out before I, I dive dive in again. And this again, this is a personal style thing, yeah. um, and I, I prefer that over you know you know doubling down on things that are not working out. Last one. I like that. That's a pretty good summary, mate. Uh, it's a specific EO question. I'm not going to add anything. I'm just going to let it sit as it does. Uh, but important to remember that of course, adding up versus doubling down is all about looking for business success, as you say, mate, that is hopefully replicated in share price success. Not being scared to buy more when the price is up because the business is doing well. Uh, often that can be a better deal than buying at a cheaper price where the business is not doing quite so well. It hasn't simply got that many runs on the board. So that whole idea can be a really, really attractive way to go and buy some stocks. All right, question from Jorge, Doc. He says, hey, Scott, massive thank you to yourself and Doc for the excellent insight. Insight, I should say, you have both provided. Looking forward, I would love your insight on some overseas company. Now, he mentions Mercado Libre and C Limited, two companies with similarities and both vying for online and fintech space in emerging markets. Now, keen listeners, if you haven't had a listen already, go back to Friday's episode because... We both talked about Mercado Libre. I recommend it as one of my top five, and you said you own it. You'd be more than happy to have it uh, as a winner. Even if you own the shares already, if not, it wasn't one of your official top five. Mate, I don't know C Limited at all. Do you know C Limited, and what does it do? Yeah, so C Limited is basically an online business, you know, uh, out. They actually have a gaming business as well, out of uh, Singapore, I believe, okay. and in uh, uh, with exposure to Southeast Asia. So again, it's 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 a rocket growing really fast. Um, yeah, I like the business too. Um, I don't own it. We have it again as as a recommendation in, in at least mm-hmm. maybe one one of our services here. Uh, but you know, again, like. Uh, I own Amazon and I own Mercado Libre and I own a couple of others that give me enough exposure to that sort of that trend of online, you know, e-commerce, digitization of, you know, of money and, and things like that. So I haven't bought C-Limited and, you know, so yeah, C-Limited is, a, is, is, a, is an interesting business, very fast growing, really rapidly growing business. So, you know, definitely worth a look. Very nice. I know absolutely nothing about it. Jorge, so there you go. You got it straight from the doc. I like Mercado Libre. I know literally nothing about C-Limited, so uh, you've got it from doc directly. All right, this one's from Chris, mate. He says, hi, Scott and doc. I have a question for the podcast, which is just as well, mate, because that's what he's done. He sent one to us. I have started listening this year, he says, and that was, again, last year, 2020. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, it was actually said last year. Uh, and I've learned an unbelievable amount 
and I feel a fool with a lowercase f, not a motley fool, but a fool for not getting in earlier. Chris, don't, uh, mate, don't ever feel bad about that, mate. The only bad time to, to not or to start investing is tomorrow. If you started today or yesterday, you're doing even better, mate. So well done. I'm a share advisor member, he says, and I've started building my portfolio. I've also now realized that my employer listed on the New York Stock Exchange offers a chance for employees to get discounted stock. He says 15% lower than the lowest price in the preceding six months. You simply opt in and nominate a percentage of your wage between 1% and 10% to be invested. I'm wondering your thoughts on if it is worth utilizing this to top up my super and hold the stock long term. Or would a better option be to invest in other stocks on the New York Stock Exchange I have a higher conviction on? Also, he says to utilize this with my employer, they use E-Trade, which I noticed you can also trade with for other stocks on the New York Stock Exchange. Any thoughts on E-Trade or am I better off setting up another account with some of the other options you have mentioned previously? Thanks again for the podcast. Definitely a five-star guide to the financial markets. Cheers, Chris. There you go, Chris. I might use that term, mate. A five-star guide to the financial markets. What do you reckon, Doc? Is that good for our marketing? Uh, I think it should be six star. <laughs> Chris is holding back one star, so you know, Chris, up your game. I think I think he's, um, I think he's responding to the number of stars available. You, you've got to talk to Tim Cook, Doc. I think I think the problem here is that you ever spoken to Tim Cook and mate, look, can you add a star or two to the podcast review system because there's not enough for the Motley Fool Money podcast? I think that's the problem. There's a, there's a common yeah, I, 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 tot- I totally, I think, you know, Cook needs to up his game. <laughs> he does, he does. All right, so here's, here's, here's the question. The, the, the number of the question from Chris is, and this is a pretty good deal, man. I worked for an employee years ago that actually let me do, I think it's almost exactly the same. So they take the lowest price on the New York Stock Exchange for the last six months. So the lowest price, no matter how volatile it's been, the very lowest price, and you get to buy it at 15% below that price. Now, to the untrained eye, an instant 15% plus profit feels too good to pass up, but am I missing something or would you say, and again, we can't tell uh, Chris what to do directly, but would you be saying to Chris, mate, take an opportunity, take the opportunity or would you be saying, nah, keep your money aside, do something else with it? What do you reckon? Well, well like, I mean, no, like, okay, on the surface, this could be a really good deal, right? If, the, if you're getting the lowest price, 15% below the lowest price, and let's say that was the 52-week, so basically the 26-week low, you get 15% below it, and maybe right. the shares today are at 52-week high, you probably could be making 20, 200% plus. I mean, at least at the time of purchase, so, you're mean, making 15%, and if it's any higher than the low, then you're making 15% plus whatever the, sh- the shares are off the low. So it's kind yeah. of a, a heads I win a lot, tails I win 15%. Yeah, so it sounds like a good deal. A couple of things. Uh, what are, are they plain, simple stock units? Are they restricted stock units? Um, yeah, again, that, those will be the big questions, right? Mm. I, I mean, if they are restricted stock units, then that you can't sell, you 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 know, and you have to hold for some time. That's number one. The other other thing is that I mean, you know, maybe maybe you're you're working in a company that where the growth is there but not that much and maybe the shares don't grow that much where the shares are overvalued i don't know there's those factors to be considered as well um and maybe there is as he has rightly pointed out that better opportunities elsewhere um i guess the final thing is just concentration risk right i mean how much more do you you know you're investing in the company you own shares in the company you own more shares in the company um i don't know that sounds like a bit of a concentration risk to me um so those are things to consider. Again, uh, it's very difficult to answer this question without knowing a lot of specifics, uh, which we don't want to know and we can't know and we shouldn't know for all the various reasons. So uh, I really, you know, those are some contours to work with, I guess. 
Nice. I like it, mate. I can't add much more to that. I will I, I'll echo your thoughts about concentration risk. There were plenty of people who uh, were Lehman Brothers millionaires and also worked there before they lost their job and their entire portfolio of Lehman Brothers shares. Um, you don't get to make that back too easily. So you just be careful on that one. Um, you have to, as you've already said, Doc, as well. Well, you don't have to do anything. In theory, as long as you're able to sell those shares straight away, you've got to think about capital gains tax. And so if you were to sell them on the day of grant, assuming they're not restricted, which they're probably not, but assuming they're not, um, you're going to halve that or whatever your whatever your short-term income is. So if you're paying 30% or 38% or 45% tax rate, then you've got to pay all that on day one. So you halve whatever gain you made, or it's probably not half, it's somewhere between, you know, as I said, uh, what is it, 55 and, and 60%, 66% you probably get to keep. Uh, so be mindful of that. Um, it, it, I The other thing I'd probably say is just, you know, think about, um, how you're going to utilize your portfolio overall, where the, where the money's going to go from that point. So uh, look, it, it, it kind of feels like free money. Um, also, there, there can be some delay often between the time you get the shares. So if, as Doc says, it's a tough business in a tough industry, um, 15% below the 26-week price is nice, but if it's going to fall again another 20% before you get the shares or after you get the shares or before you have your year to sell them, um, you can't know, of course, but just be mindful of that and be a little bit careful. It, I, on balance, mate, I'd be, I'd be probably pretty keen to look at this and probably take it up. Um, I certainly had with a previous employer again, for the record, many, many years ago, because uh, it was, you know, freeish money, and sometimes I made money, sometimes I didn't make a whole lot. Uh, but that necessarily any different to investing in shares generally. If you have a really, really good idea, you'd rather put your money in. By all means, do that, Chris. But if you've got a beat. A fifteen percent discount on the twenty-six week low to do that—that's a pretty high hurdle for any other alternative investment you might make. Is is my general view? Given the average market return is ten percent a year, um, you're getting fifteen percent discount on the lowest price, so you're going to get at least fifteen percent, probably more than that most of the time. Uh, that's a pretty high bar to try and clear to, to find a better investment. That's again not guaranteed because the shares could always fall, but it's a pretty good start and a pretty a pretty attractive set of circumstances. I I, I think I'd be generally pretty keen. Uh, but again, we can't give personal advice, so just some thoughts there. On your point about E-Trade, mate, E-Trade's probably as good as any other US brokers, particularly if that's what they use. Feel free to keep using it for them. Uh, whether you want to use it for your own investments is probably a question for you, and I don't really know E-Trade well enough. Doc, if you use the E-Trade, this is not the Australian E-Trade account, by the way, which is run by ANZ. This is E-Trade US. I don't know it at all. Um, for all reports, it's fine. It's, there's no, no reason not to use it, is there? I don't know. I, I, I know of actually some people who use E-Trade, but I have never personally used it, so I don't know anything much about e-trade again but you know why you know it's a pretty popular platform as well yeah exactly exactly doc um you might have heard bitcoin's back in the headlines it hit a record price of forty-three thousand australian dollars and i'm gonna say with absolute love for our listeners and correspondents i'm gonna i'm when we start getting bitcoin questions in the past, that's been a sign that maybe we're in for a, uh, a top because everyone gets excited about it. When everyone's excited about a trade, that's often a good time to be a little bit cautious. And I'm not saying we, I'm not predicting anything at all. And I'm certainly not having a go at our correspondence, but we got three questions in about three weeks on Bitcoin after having none, almost none for the last two years. So, you know, and the last time we got a lot of questions was when it was at last at its highs before it fell again and we, we lost, a, lost a meaningful amount of value. So do what you want with that, but I will share some thoughts or some questions. First from Ajit who says, any thoughts on Bitcoins, question mark? And that's it. Because he shared the fact that uh, the Spectator Index a Twitter account shared the Bitcoin price one year ago, it was $7,000. Three months ago, 10000 Two months ago, 13000 One month ago, 19000 The now price, 29800 That's US dollars, so, so convert that. But effectively, up fourfold in 12 months. 
And Ajit's saying, hey, guys, this looked pretty good. Any thoughts? Joel then says, hey, Scott and Irban, keen to hear your thoughts on the podcast on the current state of Bitcoin. Are either of you coming around to the idea of it as an investment? I have recently allocated 1% of my portfolio to it with the opinion it is becoming more mainstream with the likes of Square purchasing some on their balance sheet and some fairly prominent investors such as Kathy Wood, who is like, you, you like a lot, Doc, very bullish on it. Thanks, Joel. And the third question came from Maxi. Maxi traders, the Twitter account, says, G'day, Scott. Possible one for the pod. He says, Mass Mutual buys $100 million of Bitcoin. Square, $50 million. PayPal US can buy, sell, or hold. MicroStrategy over $1 billion. Yes, billion with a B. Russell Okung, an NFL player, receives $13 million per year. That would be nice, he says. That gets 50-50 split half in Bitcoin and half in currency. He says, with these couple of examples, sure it's time for yourself and the good doctor to have a look. He says, P.S. My portfolio is still mostly stocks due to your excellent recommendations. 60% stocks, 20% gold, now 10% Bitcoin and 10% others. Hashtag Doc No TikTok. Hashtag Scott on the BTC train. BTC is the abbreviation for Bitcoin, of course. All the best to you both. Happy New Year from Maxi. There you go, mate. Three questions, three Bitcoin references. One just saying, what do you reckon? Another one saying, surely at least 1% should be enough. And another one saying 10% and with a bullet. What are we missing? Are we are we finally going to come around to Bitcoin, mate, or is this remaining outside our circle of preferred investment options? Well, I'm I'm not still. You know, I'm a big fan of Kathy Wood uh, at Arc, but uh, you know, I'm still not warm to the idea of Bitcoin. Bitcoin to me seems like a bit like gold, mm. and I have a hard time trying to understand. Um, you know. Mm what it's going to do for me. And if it's like gold, it almost seems like yeah. like a hedge of some form. I no longer actually do any hedging. So I used to do some hedging, but I no longer do any hedging. And, you know, effectively, because after doing hedging for a number of years, I basically figured the hedging doesn't make me any money. Uh, but, but I know there are lots of people, smart people, who are, in, who are fans of Bitcoin and think it's going to be something. Mm. But I'm not yet... Um, you know, convinced. Fair. I'm in the same boat. I actually, I, I've said before, I, I own, I bought $100 worth of Bitcoin ages ago. Actually, funnily enough, as a result of this podcast, Andrew Page, our previous co-host, um, suggested slash uh, go to me into buying some Bitcoin finally, I think from memory. Uh, largely, we, all, we just want to get in on the game. And I'm, I'm opening the app now as we speak, mate. This is real-time Bitcoin uh, on my Coinbase app. The joke at the time was I bought it through um, through. Uh, Coinbase and I can still no longer sell it through Coinbase because they don't let you <laughs> sell it uh, from the app in Australian dollars. So I own Bitcoin. I can't get out if I wanted to. I mean, I can transfer a different wallet, but just for the fun of it. Mate, that's 600 bucks, $613.89 and 89 cents I've got in Bitcoin. So there's some um, there's some capital gains tax to pay at some point. Um, Time to sell. <laughs> exactly. Well, if I could, um, which was, of course was the joke <laughs> in the first place. The um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sold, mate. I... <sighs> The problem with so currencies aren't worth anything except relative to something else, which is so. The problem with doing foreign exchange trading, for example, so Bitcoin aside, is the Australian dollar and US dollar never. There's no unbounded upside. You know, the most it can be worth is effectively 100 to one. I mean, it could be a thousand one. I suppose at some point you could have one point one of an Australian cent for a US dollar or something. I mean, the maths can can go in that direction at some point, but they're naturally bounded by each other. And that's why the exchange rates fluctuate. Making money from that is really hard, right? Because you're always betting against somebody else on a movement where it's just kind of a zero-sum game. For the US, the US dollar go up, the US dollar's got to go down if that's the pair you're investing in or trading in. 
and vice versa on the other way. So someone's going to lose for you to win. In shares, yeah, I can sell something that then goes up. And so I miss that. But it's not a zero-sum game. It's actually positive expected value right across the market. Shares go up over time. And that's what makes it, for my money, uh, literally and metaphorically, a much more attractive way to invest. Now, if you believe Bitcoin is going to be a future currency, that's fine. But it's got to be worth something compared to the other currencies. And there's no there's no really easy way to, to find to, to kind of fundamentally assess what that value will be. We don't yet know. We know how much of it there's likely to be. I think there's 21 million coins is the maximum from memory. Um, in theory, while there is some money printing and QE going on, and that's you know that's part of the reason people like Bitcoin is you can't inflate Bitcoin away, at least in theory. Um, it's hard to know precisely how to think about how that plays out. What what the kind of ongoing value is the Australian dollar is worth about 77 US cents as we record this maybe it goes to 50 maybe it goes to a dollar but it's reasonably bounded and you can you know you can make your speculation but it is what it is um, the only way to speculate in Bitcoin as a as a capital compounder over any extended period of time is just to believe that more people will want it and so they'll pay more for it at some point um, but again you have to believe it's kind of, there's some sort of there's some sort of net number with simply nets out okay well by the time you divide it up into its pieces there's only so much of it to go around and, and people are going to you know exchange so much of it for each other again the australian dollar us dollar example or australian dollar yen or sterling whatever it is it's going to be worth something compared to something else it can't compound it at a rate forever similarly to, to gold there's only so much gold around it's only be worth so much money the supply and demand determines how much gold people actually want or need why is gold two thousand dollars an ounce rather than twenty dollars or two million dollars well, basically because people only want so much of it. <laughs> there's only so much of it around. So if it was worth more, um, if people probably wanted it, it would go up. But that's, again, not there's no fundamental basis for it. It's just a matter of the indifference between, or the difference, I should say, between supply and demand, the, the difference in proportionality between those two forces. So look at Bitcoin. The question really is, how much Bitcoin do people want in the future? How badly do they want it? And if you can't know that, how do you invest in it? And that's what's stopping me. I'm not saying it can't go up, but it may well. Uh, but as an investor... Our job is to assign a probability to something based on some sort of known or expected or assumed fundamentals. Um, again, as you said, Doc, I, I don't want to be on the other side of a trade from Kathy Wood necessarily. Um, it's not a, not a comfortable place to be. And I'm not saying she'll do badly with it either, by the way. I'm just saying I don't know how you look at it and say, this is definitely worth investing because X, when you are relying on the fact that people want it. I mean, you could, go back to the old days, man, yo-yos. There's only so many yo-yos in the world. I guess they could be worth whatever they are worth if you wanted to. Um, you know, stamps, coins, same thing. How many... How many um, you know, bad 1901 pennies are there. There's only so many in the world. If all of a sudden everyone wanted it, the price would go up. If no one wanted it, the price would go down. But there's no fundamental assessment of its value possible because it doesn't produce or create anything. And that's what makes it really, really hard to value. And I just don't see a basis for it. You might think more people want it in the future. That's fine. But you have to have a reason for believing so and, and a justified reason that has some sort of basis in reality. I just don't know what it is. I don't have any functional way of assessing that. So I simply don't buy it. Any more on that? I have nothing to add. Beautiful. We got a question, or oh, sorry, comment from Paul, mate, which I have to share in all modesty. Uh, well, partly. Uh, Scott, Paul says, Scott, a message for the Ace podcast. I'm going to assume that's ours. He says, thanks for a great year of stock suggestions, both locally and in the US. Thank you, Paul. Now, here's, here's Paul's comment. For listeners who are wondering about whether to invest in the US, here is the reason. My portfolio was up 97.94% for the year. Yes, I went heavily tech growth, he says, but many were big companies. Amazon, MasterCard, PayPal, Appian, DocuSign, Pinterest, Starbucks, Datadog, etc. As the doc says, fish in the big pond. Please repeat the performance, he asks. <laughs> he says, by the time I retire, it may be more on my US stocks than my Aussie stocks. He says, P.S., if you can't help me double every year, how about every two years at least? 
Paul, we can't promise either of those two things, mate, but we're glad you've made some money uh, and there have been some spectacular successes here as well as in the US, by the way, but some of those US returns are just phenomenal, mate. It was a great year for US stocks, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, I think, you know, I think last three years have actually been really good for, um, you know, tech stocks in general and, and sort of tech-focused markets. So, there you go. Yeah, I mean, you know, those things can change. Absolutely. Got to say too, Matt, I know you don't worry too much about the currency. I worry a little bit about it, but with a dollar at 77 odd US cents, I reckon it's a pretty good time to be throwing some money into US dollars and US stocks right now, I have to say. So I'm not, I'm not big on speculating on the currency, but I was a little bit, uh, yeah, not, not super keen to be throwing your money in the US with a dollar at, with a six in front of it. And certainly not with predictions of it going lower, but at 77 and a half cents, I don't know. It's a pretty attractive time to be putting, uh, putting some money to work in the US market, I reckon. Oh, I think I agree. Uh, I mean, it's a probably a good time to put some. Uh, um, actually, in my my mind, it's always a good time to put money in, onto the best companies. The, the, <laughs> and the, the reason is very simple, right? I mean, if you can get hundred percent return, like Paul has got, uh, I mean, doesn't matter whether you bought it at sixty cents. I mean, it matters. Totally. But yeah, yeah, yeah. The bigger, the bigger, the bigger opportunities elsewhere. Yeah, like I mean, if you got eighty percent, ninety percent, hundred percent returns, I mean, those are those are like I mean, that is <laughs> what good. like five years of return, right? Exactly. <laughs> so yeah. no, you get you get right. Yeah, all so all money, I'm saying is you can add to that, right? So not only do you get the best companies, but yeah, you also absolutely, get the price. If, absolutely. if you were if you were hesitant before, you are uh, look. Now's a great time. Yeah, dollar always go higher. Of course, yeah. it can. It could be eighty cents at some point, but um, in a relative sense. You're getting close to 80 cents. I, I, I would be, I'd be pretty keen on putting some money to work in the US. In fact, I may well do that next time I have some cash. I'll see how I go. All right, mate. Um, last one. Last one from Dom. Uh, we've got so many questions. I, I wish we'd get through more. You and I probably should talk less. Or at least I should talk less and let you talk more. Uh, but Dom says, hey, Scott, hope you guys are having a nice break with your families. A couple of questions for the podcast, please. Sure, Dom. First question. How are taxes calculated on the sale of US stocks? How is it paid and when? How does this differ to Australia? And is my Australian income tax rate a factor at all when selling US stocks? I love listening to you on the dock and look forward to the releases each week. Thank you, Dom. Doc, I have some US stocks. You have more US stocks and you're more invested in the US. I'll throw this one to you. How do your US or our US, anyone's US stock sales impact their Australian tax? Okay, as usual, I'll preface by saying I'm not a tax consultant or a financial advisor. Uh, but I can give you a high-level picture because uh, of because uh, I deal with this every uh, tax year. Yeah. Um, well, it's effectively there's no difference. It's the same thing. You know, if you have a capital gain, you basically pay capital gains tax. Um, if it's a long-term capital gain, then you get to keep half of it, and then you pay tax on the other half. You pay tax exactly as you would if you had Australian shares. Mm. Um, it's a less complicated in the sense that there's no franking, so uh, or no offsetting from franking. But then you don't have to consider franking. And the only thing that you might have to consider is dividend uh, withholding. So there is withholding on dividends. The you know the American government or the IRS. I think it's the IRS. It's the IRS. I yeah. Might be wrong yep. about this. No, you're right. Um, so the so whatever is the ATO equivalent in the U.S. They basically uh, will keep somewhere around 15% of your dividend payments that you get mm-hmm. if you have dividend payments. However, you can offset that against your taxes here. Um, so, you know, you get credit for the fact that you're paid taxes elsewhere because there's a tax treaty between the uh, between Australia and the United States. So that's really the long and short of it. Nice. Uh, you need to consider currency. So effectively, when you bought the stock, the currency converted then versus when you sold it, the currency converted now. Uh, ATO, 
has actually published rates, con currency conversion rates, you would be surprised for pretty much any country in the world, you can get the ATO's conversion rates uh, right off the ATO website. Uh, you can also get it from software if you want, but you know, ATO handily provides that if you want. Um, and that's really it. And you have some flex in terms of how you want to deal with the deal with the exchange rates as long as you're consistent, I believe. So you could use the, the rate on that particular day. You could also use the monthly rate if you want as an average and as long as you can do that consistently and not try to, I guess, cheat by you know using the monthly when it is an advantage to you and using the daily when it is an advantage to you and things like that. So then, again, the ATU also publishes the average rate if you want. Um, things like that. So that's really the long and short of it. Beautiful, Not mate. Too complicated. Well summarised. Uh, yeah, look, I, I just my, my only additional thought was just to, to re-underline something. Effectively, Dom, it doesn't matter where the asset is held. If you're a Australian resident and Australian resident for tax purposes, then the ATO rules govern what happens. And it really doesn't matter whether the assets are held in the US, the UK, Mars, Germany, uh, Uranus, pick, pick, your, pick your location. Uh, if you if you received income during the tax year, the ATO needs to know about it. If you receive capital gains during the tax year, the ATO needs to worry about it or needs to know about it. It doesn't matter at all what exchange or which market, which country the asset is domiciled in, with the exception, as Doc says, of the dividend withholding tax of 15% that you can claim back because Australia and the US have a tax treaty with each other and you basically offset that that tax already paid against the residual tax you've got to pay. So if you've got, you're on a 30% tax rate, for example, um, then they've already done half the taxation for you when you get the cash, you'll have to do the rest. So that's that's generally the way it, it tends to work, but otherwise Doc's covered it beautifully. Mate, we've run out of time. I am, We've got so many more questions to get through. I don't, I don't know how we do it other than me talking less. Uh, so I'll try and do that next week. In the meantime... We do want you to subscribe, please, to the Triple M Motley for Money podcast, basically because it makes us feel good and look good, but mostly because we want you and other people that you might influence to find out a little bit more about The Motley Fool and about great investing, or at least investing we think is the right way to go about it. Our results are thus far pretty good, and we hope to continue to deliver those for you. But we want to make sure many, many more people, including you, we don't want you to miss an episode, and we want to help other people find it as well. And we know the number of subscribers and the people who leave comments and reviews really do push us up the kind of visibility charts at both Apple and the Android apps. So please do us a favor. If you wouldn't mind, if you're not subscribed, do it for yourself. If you are, please leave us some stars, leave us a review because other people can find us that way, which frankly is good for our egos, but hopefully we're doing this for free. So hopefully even more importantly is good for your finance and those of other people who'll find the podcast. So please leave us a rating and a review if you wouldn't mind. And of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox plus some marketing efforts. Uh, if you go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. And uh, of course, an email from me occasionally as well. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money our very special bonus episode, as always. But we will be back next Friday with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.